Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, suggesting the Emergencies Act on the first weekend of the protest. It is no secret that we did discuss the Emergencies Act in the context of the pandemic, and it became quite familiar with the requirements. Text messages from Justice Minister David Lemeny show he raised the option of the act in late January. The inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act also hears that the minister called Ottawa's former police chief incompetent. How does Lemeny's testimony shape the last week of this commission? We'll break it down with former Justice Minister Peter McKay. Plus, Alberta's affordability plan. We can't solve this inflation crisis on our own. But due to our strong fiscal position and balanced budget, we can offer substantial relief. Premier Danielle Smith is indexing social support programs to inflation and handing families cash. Is that the best way for the province to spend its fiscal surplus? We'll dig into that with the leader of the NDP in Alberta, Rachel Notley. And a match 36 years in the making. Play downfield, it's a chance to bust you Canada takes the pitch for their first World Cup match in a generation. How did they fare against the second best team in the world? We'll have a full report from Doha. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. I, I'm a part-time resident of Ottawa. Uh, I was a part-time resident of Ottawa during this. Uh, I was forced out of my living arrangements in Ottawa because... I felt that the place I was living was unsafe, given the protests. Well, that was Justice Minister David Lametti describing how he experienced the occupation of Ottawa back in February. He was one of three cabinet ministers scheduled to testify today at the inquiry looking into the government's use of the Emergencies Act. Lametti's text messages were under the microscope as he used some very blunt language to describe Ottawa's former police chief. He called Peter Slowly incompetent. We also learned that Lametti raised the option of the Emergencies Act in the first weekend of the convoy protest. Now, we continue to watch Defence Minister Anita Anand, who is testifying right now at the inquiry. Later, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra will be up and in, in the witness seat. Now, we'll listen in shortly, but first, let's break down what we've heard so far. CTV News' senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor, joins us here in studio. Glenn, thanks again for this Justice Minister Lametti, also the Attorney General, limited in what he could say because of solicitor-client privilege. That's right. He's, he's not but, only the Justice Minister, he's also the lawyer for right. the federal government, so he has solicitor-client privilege that prevents him from talking about things that he advised mm -hmm. his cabinet colleagues. Yeah, but he was also quite liberal in what he was <laughs> saying over text message, it seems, back in January and February. He couldn't talk a lot, but his text messages certainly did. I think this whole inquiry has been a really good reminder for people in Ottawa, official Ottawa, who work in the federal government, that... Like emails, your text messages between colleagues, even though they seem very informal and mm -hmm. impromptu and they seem private, they are not and they could potentially show up at a commission of inquiry. Embarrassing for Lametti today to, to see that text message where he was slamming Peter Slowly, the then chief of the Ottawa Police Service, uh, as an incompetent and uh, questioning why he hadn't developed a, a plan, a multi-layered plan that Lametti called it. And he's expressing this not just to anybody. This is to Marco Mendicino, right? right? His, his 
apparently they're buddies, yeah. uh, as, in addition to being uh, cabinet colleagues. So there's this kind of a casual tone that's going back and forth between these uh, uh, in, in these text messages. Uh, I think probably uh, Lametti would like to have that back, as you heard uh, the clip that you played at, on the introduction to the show. Uh, he's uh, talking; it, it was intemperate of him, and he was right. reacting to the fact that he himself was feeling the effects of the convoy living downtown. His staff, he says, were being harassed. He had to essentially go back to Montreal, where his writing is, and uh, conduct business virtually because it was just too difficult for them to work. And that's what he was expressing. And he said, well, you know, heat of the moment, you say things that probably you shouldn't. Yeah. Now, we wanted to hear a lot from him, but because of a solicitor-client privilege, not able to do that. And that's because he wears the two hats, right, Justice Minister and Attorney General. Right. What did we hear, though, about the legal advice that he was giving to government as the Attorney General? There's this legal point that's come up about the interpretation of the Emergencies Act with respect to something called the CSIS Act. That's mm. the law. It was created in 1984 in response to all the scandals in the 70s and 80s involving the RCMP. Remember the barn burning? It right. led to the McDonald Commission. They recommended breaking off the intelligence part, giving it to CSIS. So the Emergencies Act draws on some of the legislation that created CSIS, uh, but the federal government in this case is arguing, and it's the first time they've used this act ever, so they're having to argue for the first time, right. that the interpretation should be broader, that when CSIS uses the powers, the extraordinary powers that are given to it to uh, put people under surveillance, Surveillance, there's a different standard that applies to the federal government because they're getting information not just from CSIS, they're getting it from all over uh, uh, different sources, the RCMP, uh, Canadian Forces in some right. cases. They're drawing this all together and they're saying it's the federal government that makes the decision whether this qualified as a national emergency. It isn't CSIS that does it. We also have Anita Anand, who's on um, the stand right now, the Defense yeah. Minister, Omar Al-Gabra, coming after her. What do we expect to learn from these two ministers? Not a great deal. I don't think it's going to inform us a lot about the decision that was ultimately made on February 14th to invoke the act. Uh, some interesting questions to Anita Anand, the Defense Minister, about the possibility that Canadian forces could have been used as a response to the convoy the occupation mm -hmm. in Ottawa and also blockades at other border crossings. Uh, and she described that, as other ministers have, as truly the last resort. And that makes the Emergencies Act the second to last resort. She says, first of all, Canadian Forces members aren't trained to do policing. They aren't public order officers. They don't know how to handle crowds. They are trained for combat. Yeah. Right? And you don't want to send those people in to a situation like we saw in downtown Ottawa, uh, they're not equipped for it, and it could go badly, and it also would be quite a, you know, astounding image to see Canadian Forces members in their fatigues right. with their military equipment on the streets. Evoking images of the War Measures Act exactly. by... Prime this Minister is historical context to all this. Pierre right? Elliott Trudeau, yeah. right? Pierre Elliott Trudeau. You know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wanted that on his watch. That's right. I remember we the line that Paul Martin used in an election campaign, his liberal campaign, talking about soldiers in the streets, raising mm -hmm. fear that Stephen Harper would do something like this. So it's something I don't think uh, any government would ever want to do, except in the most dire circumstances, put Canadian Forces uh, members into a law enforcement role. Uh, obviously, it was, there might have been some discussion about this, according to Anand, but it was, it was never really under consideration. Yeah. CTV News senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor. Thanks so much, Glenn. Thanks. Appreciate it. We're now going to circle back to this morning's testimony from Justice Minister David Lametti. Now, who better to break it down than Peter McKay? He's a former conservative justice minister and a former defense minister. He's now strategic advisor for Deloitte and McKinnis Cooper. Thanks for being with us, Mr. McKay. I want to dig right in. David Lametti is a cabinet minister, but also as attorney general. He's also giving the government legal advice. Now, we heard him invoke that solicitor-client privilege. How difficult is it and to sort of make this delicate dance that we saw him try and do on the stand today as he's wearing those two hats? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Michael, and, and it depends on the issue where clearly this uh, becomes a very difficult issue is that it it was also, to complicate it further, laced with a lot of politics and a sense of urgency, hence the discussion itself around the Emergencies Act. But you may recall that former Justice Minister and uh, Attorney General Anne McClellan did quite an extensive study on this subject matter, whether they should, in fact, split the departments between justice and attorney general. And they ultimately, this minister, David LeMay, came to the conclusion that they should not. Um, but as you point out, where there is this apparent, uh, seemingly conflict at times where you're the, the government's chief lawyer giving them advice, sitting in cabinet, where you have this broader uh, responsibility, definition, job description that requires you to sometimes separate yourself from your party, the government, and reflect the better interests of the country. It does become a very difficult, delicate dance to do and to parse the two roles. And hence this invoking of the, the privilege that you saw from the minister today, which some may misinterpret as uh, a refusal to answer or hiding behind it. The problem for this minister, of course, is that so much of, of his words are, are out there now by virtue of these texts. And so that also has created a, a further definitional problem for what he was trying to do. Yeah, I wanted to go over some of those text messages with you. I mean, they revealed the minister was exploring the use of the Emergencies Act early on. In fact, it was the first weekend of sort of put that on the table in this text that we're seeing right now. Would you say that it was premature or prudent of him to raise the specter of the Emergencies Act? Well, I, I think it is, uh, you know, an exercise of his role to explore all eventualities, as, as I would put it. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Michael, it, it goes back even further. There was reference in one of the texts, I believe, uh, or somewhere in the testimony to them, the department, looking at the use of the Emergency Act in, in response to COVID more broadly. Specifically on this, uh, on this occasion, though he's talking about the convoy, he's talking about whether they have to use this extraordinary measure to empower the police, empower and protect Canadian citizens. And so it, it's very specific to his role. And so I, I don't think anybody could uh, blame him of being inflammatory. And it was, of course, done internally. I wanted to ask you about the meeting the definition of the national security threat in the CSIS Act. Do you think that the government was tied to meeting that narrow threshold in the CSIS Act, given that the act was passed back in 1984, the Emergencies Act then passed in 1988? Did that force the government to have to broaden the definition on what constitutes an actual emergency for this act? No, I, I don't. And, and I guess I, I adhere to the the rule of law. And uh, yes, this this can be argued that this situation emerged uh, quickly and it caused uh, everyone to scramble. But in anticipation of modernizing laws, which the Department of Justice is, is tasked with, and they have a, an army, if you will, of drafters and individuals that look at constitutionality and people very uh, specifically tasked with that, if they wanted to change, expand, uh, be more uh, inclusive of various scenarios, that could have and should have been done. It's not really, in my view, for the government to say, well, we're now uh, inventing, imposing a new, broader definition on this legislation to meet, you know, I'll, I'll say it, a, a political purpose or cover. And that's the dilemma. And I think you've put your finger on what is really 
the essential question uh, of this commission to get to is, did they overreach? Did they go too far? And did they go outside the parameters of the law as written right now? Yeah, I wanted to finish up with uh, just these less than professional text messages, I think that we could call them, that were publicized between Minister Lametti and Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Do you think that's a lesson for ministers going forward or just a human moment that happened to be captured by the commission? Well, it's, it's both. And yes, it's, uh, it's very uh, obviously apparent that these texts, both those incoming and those that the minister wrote himself, were never anticipated as being public or certainly being viewed by by anyone other than the recipient and yeah it's a it's a hard lesson it's a reminder that much of what we do online uh, may very well come back to haunt us and be subject uh, to examination and therefore out of context inappropriate as the the minister described it sort of done in a in a joking and i think he himself called it inappropriate way that uh, that is making it more and more difficult for what a lot of Canadians look for in their politicians, and that is authenticity. But if you if you think even private discussions, private email exchanges are going to be the subject of, of scrutiny like this, um, that I think is, is going to lead to a much more cautious and, and reserved exchange between ministers, members of parliament, their staff. Uh, and, and I think we've been tacking in this direction for some time. Yeah, likely. Uh, former Justice Minister and Defence Minister Peter McKay, thanks so much for joining us tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Coming up, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith unveiled a $2.4 billion affordability aid package last night. But will these new checks and tax breaks ultimately exacerbate inflation in that province? Alberta Opposition Leader Rachel Notley joins us next right here on Power Play. Too many moms and dads are having to choose between nutritious food for their children and making their rising mortgage payments. Many seniors are choosing between filling their needed prescriptions and fuel for their vehicles. As a province, we can't solve this inflation crisis on our own. But due to our strong fiscal position and balanced budget, we can offer substantial relief so Albertans and their families are better able to manage through this storm. Well, it's being billed as a new plan to help Albertans deal with inflation. Premier Daniel Smith announced her affordability plan last night in a nine-minute supper hour address. The $2.4 billion plan lays out numerous measures, including over $600 over six months to parents for each child under 18 and every senior. It applies to Alberta households making under $180,000 annually. Now, Albertans using income supports will also get that $600. Smith is also planning to suspend the provincial fuel tax for at least six months. And there will be a $200 per home rebate on electricity bills from January to April. Now, where will Alberta find this money? Well, Alberta is on track for a $13 billion surplus as a result of high oil and gas revenues. So is this really the best use of Alberta's surplus, or will it just fan inflammatory or inflationary flame, flames? Finding, uh, Let's find out now. Joining me is Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. We should also say, Ms. Notley, first of all, thanks for joining us. We are going to note to viewers we did invite Premier Smith on the show 
Her office did not respond. Ms. Notley, we are thrilled to speak to you, and thank you again for making the time. I want to start with your reaction to this affordability plan. Is this how the government should be using the surplus? Well, you know, I, I think the fact of the matter is, is there are, are a lot of families in Alberta who are struggling with real affordability issues. And one of the things that we have to remember is that this government had a lot of ground to make up because a good part of the things that they announced last night were actually just reversals of previous policies that the UCP had put in place that was actually piling additional costs on top of Albertans. Um, and so it's not quite the big announcement that, that folks think it is. Um, we know this amount of money isn't actually going to have an impact on inflation. We've heard that from economists, and I believe that to be true. But I also believe that what we needed to do was have a much better designed uh, package for Albertans. Uh, this one leaves about 2 million Albertans out uh, who likely uh, needed it more than many of the folks who will receive some of the support. And in the meantime, those who are most vulnerable in Alberta are still uh, significantly behind where they were were before the UCP made a whole bunch of cuts to the, their programs earlier on in their mandate. So as Albertans and Canadians deal with this affordability crisis with prices on everything from food to electricity and gas being higher than usual, what kind of support would the NDP, the Alberta NDP, wanted to see in this type of affordability plan? Well, first of all, I guess what whatever affordability plan we come up with is going to be a plan that doesn't work like a pre-election gift card that expires uh, the second after writ day, which is how this is primarily designed. And it's why I think a lot of Albertans aren't really going to feel the benefit of this because they don't trust that it will last for any length of time. Um, in fact, you know, before the last election in 2019, the UCP uh, voted in favor of, of increasing benefits to vulnerable, vulnerable Albertans and then changed their mind and broke that promise after the election. So there's not a lot of, of, of stability there. But so what we would do is we would focus more directly on the issues uh, or on the people that need help. We would ensure that the help we provided was predictable. So, for instance, rather than a $50 rebate on a utility bill that might well be $1,000 uh, this year because or this month, uh, because, of course, we have a very unique energy market in Alberta and the, the volatility in terms of people's utilities in Alberta is unmatched anywhere else in the country. Um, so we had put a, we had wanted to have a cap in place. We had a cap in place when we were in government. The UCP took it off. We would put something back. Back in place. We would uh, put a cap back in place with respect to insurance. Car insurance has gone up 30-40% because the UCP uh, took the cap off. Um, we would um, uh, also... Notley, I, don't want, um, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm, I'm going to have to for a second. So I just want to know, though, will your, support, will your party support this Inflation Relief Act? Um, well, I don't know. We're going to have to make some adjustments to it, and we're, we're going to have to see what it looks like, because first of all, we need to see if, if the Act, for instance, guarantees that it lasts past the election, and what benefits do last past the election. And again, uh, I, we'd rather see the folks, the vulnerable Albertans, uh, act, who uh, this 
partially addresses, we'd like to see them get the $3,000 that they are still behind because of cuts the UCP made. We'd like to see them get that back. Um, and, uh, and we'd also like to see those low-income families that don't have kids get some kind of support. So uh, we'll be uh, uh, looking through it pretty carefully because we want to see, a, again, a well-designed plan that people can count on that actually gets into the hands of folks who most need it. I want to change gears for a second and ask you about Justice Minister Tyler Shandro's call for the removal of RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, saying that Alberta has lost confidence in her. We did just get a statement from Commissioner Lucky, and I'll just read it for viewers here. It says she has seen the statement from Alberta Justice Minister. In 2018, I was given a strong mandate. I remain fully committed to leading the RCMP to be a modern, inclusive and healthy organization that our employees and all residents of Canada expect of us. I'm proud of our organization and great work done by our employees on a daily basis from coast to coast and beyond. So I wanted to ask you, have you lost confidence in Commissioner Lucky? Uh, you know, no, we haven't. I mean, and let's be perfectly clear. Uh, there are many Albertans around this province who are worried about their safety, their personal safety. And there are a lot of things that we can do in collaboration with the RCMP to improve the, the quality of public safety uh, in communities across the province. What Tyler Shandro did is political grandstanding. It is about nothing more than uh, trying to find a way to buttress what is otherwise a deeply unpopular move on the part of this uh, government to, to waste money creating a provincial police force uh, for no other reason than to carry on a fight with um, uh, Ottawa at a cost of at least $300 million as a starting point. So this is about that politics. This isn't about a genuine desire to improve the quality of public safety enjoyed by Albertans. Um, and, uh, and my focus is on doing just that. Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. You bet. Coming up, disappointment on the pitch. Canada kicks off their quest for the World Cup with a hard-fought loss to Belgium. We're taking a quick break here for some orange slices. We'll have a full recap with CTV News' Heather Wright in Doha. Power Play will be back right after this. It wasn't quite Davis versus Goliath, but the odds were not on Canada's side. In the FIFA World Rankings, Canada is 41st, while Belgium is second. Canada's first World Cup game in 36 years was a 1-0 loss. It's safe to say Canadians haven't been this frustrated with the European country since 2016 when the Canada-EU trade deal was held up because of Belgium. With more on that game, here's CTV News' Heather Wright in Doha. Amped up Canadians arrived at the stadium ready to witness history. We had to be here. We had to be here. I love the sport, I love my country, and I'm so glad that Canada gets to take part of this. It's amazing. Thousands donning the maple leaf after making the trek to Qatar for a moment millions have never seen in their lifetime. I always wanted to go to a World Cup. It's my first World Cup match tonight. So, yeah, super excited to be here. I think we're going to do something magical here. I just feel it. The moment we've all been waiting for. Inside Canada's national team taking to the field. A moment, a generation in the making. The true North Star and 
Oh, Canada has not been heard at the tournament since 1986. A proud moment for the team and the country. It's such a special moment and to finally get out there and, and live those dreams, make those dreams come true. As the game got underway, Canada, ranked 41st in the world, took on number two Belgium. In Ahmed Ben Ali Stadium, a sea of red and white. Early on, star Alfonso Davies missed a penalty kick in a game Canada seemed to dominate. Larry with a header. And back at home across the country, people watched at countless viewing parties and everything from bars to school gymnasium. Super impressed with how the men started. Um, obviously had their chances. But late in the first half, this happened. And Belgium take the lead inside the final two minutes of the first half. For Canada, the shots kept coming, but they couldn't find the back of the net. The nation's first ever goal at a World Cup will have to wait. These lads put a shift in. They showed that they can live on this stage. And I think they made the fans proud and made them feel like they belong here. And that was important for us. Despite the loss, Canada played a strong game against one of the top-seeded teams. They will get another chance on Sunday when they take on Croatia. Heather Wright, CTV News, Al Rayon, Qatar. And here are some other news you need to know. A teenage boy is being mourned today in Israel and here at home after he was killed in a twin bombing in Jerusalem. The teenager has been identified as Aryeh Shakopek. He's an Israeli-Canadian who, who was a student at Jewish seminary. Two bombs were detonated at separate bus stops 30 minutes apart. Reports say they were hidden in bags, packed with nails, and detonated remotely. No one has claimed responsibility for the attacks, but Israeli authorities are blaming it on Palestinian militants. The Prime Minister today saying in a social media post, incredibly saddened to learn about the death of a young Canadian in the terrorist attack in Jerusalem. I'm sending his family and friends my deepest condolences. I'm also thinking of those who were injured. Canada condemns this violence in the strongest possible terms. The Prime Minister is continuing to assert that there was no Chinese interference in the 2019 federal election. The House Committee yesterday, Elections Canada Chief Electoral Officer, told MPs that he had not received any such reports. Justin Trudeau says Canadians need to have confidence in the electoral system. The integrity of elections was not compromised. The Chief Electoral Officer just last night highlighted that no, there was no uh, compromising of the integrity of our elections. And indeed, as I've said, for all the briefings I get, I get a lot of security briefings, uh, there were never uh, issues brought up around uh, compromising our elections. So yes, people need to be asking questions and making sure, uh, but uh, they also need to have confidence in the systems that we've the Bloc Québécois has filed an official complaint with Canada's elections commissioner and it's being reviewed. A recent report by Global News suggested China allegedly interfered with Canada's 2019 federal election, partly by funding the campaigns of at least 11 candidates. Still to come, limited testimony from Justice Minister David Lametti. Solicitor-client privilege was invoked several times by Canada's Attorney General, but does that mean the public isn't hearing the full story behind invoking the Emergencies Act? Lawyer Solomon Friedman joins the press gallery next on PowerPlay.
our country's soldiers are not police officers. They are not trained in crowd control. They are not trained in protest management. They are not law enforcement. And that reality was one that the Chief of Defence Staff and my Deputy Minister and I carried with us throughout this time. Furthermore, the National Defence Act itself specifically states that the Canadian Armed Forces are the force of last resort. That was Defence Minister Anita Anand just a few min moments ago at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Well, that act was put on the table in the first week of the so-called Freedom Convoy. New text messages shared by the Commission show that Justice Minister David Lametti first floated at least considering the Emergencies Act on January 30th, just days into the protest. So was it clear to the government in the early days of the protest that control on the ground was lost? Well, today's testimony also saw a variety of text exchanges from the minister, and those were made public. Those texts included him calling then-Ottawa Police Services Chief Peter Slowly incompetent and what he called attempts at bad humor in an exchange with Marco Mendicino where they made jokes about tanks. So how critical is the Justice Minister's testimony? And what does it reveal about the government's decision-making? Let's bring in the press gallery panel to weigh in on this. Toronto Star's parliamentary reporter, Tonda McCharles. She's joining us from the Emergencies Act inquiry. We have the Global Mail's Hi, parliamentary bureau chief, Bob Fife. He's here in studio. And criminal defense lawyer, Solomon Friedman. Thank you all for being with us. Solomon, I want to start with you. Now, the public is hearing a lot from David Lametti, but also hearing him invoke solicitor-client privilege on a number of occasions because he was providing cabinet with this legal advice. I want to get your reaction to that. And as I was saying to uh, Minister McKay earlier, that difficult dance that he has to, has to do as he's wearing those two hats. Yeah, and I think this is going to be very reminiscent for people of the SNC-Lavalin scandal, where we're looking for openness and transparency, but instead what we're getting is the invocation of solicitor-client privilege, right? And there has long been a debate in legal circles about whether or not it's appropriate that solicitor-client privilege applies the same way as it does between me and a client, a private mm -hmm. citizen, and between the government, elected officials, getting advice from other elected officials. And what I think we're seeing most of all is that it's being used to really stymie the most important inquiry here, which is, was the legal standard for the invocation of the Emergencies Act met? Tonda, I want to bring you in because specifically on that point that was made about the SNC-Lavalin scandal in 2018, prompting that report by former Justice Minister Anne McClellan, the report found that splitting the roles of the Justice Minister and the Attorney General would not make a difference. It did suggest detailed protocol for specific prosecutions. She did suggest a new oath and an oath that emphasizes prosecution, prosecutorial independence. You've been at the Commission since day one. Does this renew that conversation about separating the two roles? Well, um, I would say perhaps only partly because that was in the context uh, of the fallout from the SNC-Lavalin scandal, which was around, you know, the decision um, uh, of a public prosecutor to pursue criminal charges and whether or not the government for political reasons was trying to influence that decision. So there was a context there. Here, it's it, the discussion around, you know, the justice minister and the attorney and his role as attorney general is kind of in a different context. It's, it's in the context of what were the cabinet delivery 
deliberations around the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, did Lametti, who was the Attorney General, give legal advice or and his department and or his department give legal advice to the cabinet that, yes, they had met some kind of legal threshold when we've heard that, uh, you know, to declare a public order emergency can be um, very closely tied or not, if that's the advice they were getting, to the definition of what a security threat was in the CSIS Act. So there's been a lot of, there's a different context here around this. Um, I, I don't think that this necessarily kicks up that debate about whether they should split justice minister or AG anymore. What it does, however, is show that, um, you know, even the commission counsel here said, this is a big black box for us. I mean, one of the key questions here is trying to figure out, did they meet the test? And we don't have answers because what legal advice were they acting on? Uh, the, David Lametti wouldn't give it up and neither did, you know, Justice Rulo have any greater success in trying to persuade him that, look, I need to know if your decision was reasonable and I don't. Bob, I wanted to sort of pick up on that because we saw some of these text messages, but then again, solicitor-client privilege is invoked. So is this standing in the way of the public fully understanding what went into the decision-making process? Oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> I mean, that's what the ju Justice Rouleau said at the end of the hearings today, as, as Donna referred to. There's a black box here. Mm -hmm. And look, let's cut to the chase here. The CSIS Act, and even CSIS said that the invocation of the uh, Emergencies Act uh, in this particular case with the convoy, did not meet uh, the, uh, the CSIS Act. Right. Um, and everybody is, and the basis of this was some broad, def new definition that was su supplied by the Justice Department to broaden the definition so that it would be legal to do so. They are not providing that information right. to Canadians, to the, to the uh, inquiry. We have no idea. Justice Lametti said, trust us. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, we don't. Yeah. Well, we're not going to let trust you for bringing in uh, uh, an emergency act that takes away people's rights. That is absolutely not on the cards, and the government has failed the commission and failed the Canadian public by not providing that th their definition for why they s felt they could bring in the act, even though it does not meet the criteria of the CSIS Act. Certainly, leaving a lot more questions I mean, I, and to, answers. To Bob, be honest, we are going to get. Sorry, go ahead, Tonda. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, to be honest, I mean, if they did release the opinion, it might actually validate and further their own arguments, unless, of course, the opinion said, don't dare do it. You're going the wrong, down the wrong road and they don't want to reveal it for that reason. But if they actually did have legal advice that said there is a broader definition and here's all the case law that supports it and here's everything you can use, maybe that would bolster the government's argument and maybe... Uh, give them, cut them some slack in public opinion, but uh, right now they're not getting any benefit of any doubt. No, not at all. Um, and what we're going to do right now, Tana, we're going to let you get back in to the uh, inquiry right now because we are going to rejoin that live coverage looking into the government's use of the Emergency Act. There you have Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra. He's testifying. Let's listen in. I was involved in the d development of the decision to um, 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 to include a vaccine mandate for the transportation sector. Um, we had an election on that um, and uh, we uh, got re-elected as a government. And uh, I was tasked by the prime minister to complete, it was part of my mandate letter to ensure the protection of the safety of those who work in the industry and those who use the industry. Um, and uh, there, um, there were 
eventually some opposition and um, uh, it, where it manifested in, in this form of convoy protest that I heard about. I was briefed about it by the department first and then uh, through law enforcement agencies. And what issues first, what, what issues did the convoy pre present? I mean, obviously it's a convoy of trucks and you're the Minister of Transport, but can you tell me about the uh, connection between the federal responsibility for transport and the provincial responsibility for transport and how you decided your department could uh, become involved help, helpfully in, in managing the protests in the convoy? The, you know, it was the, the protests at the beginning was against all mandates. Um, and at that time, there were vaccine mandates at all levels of government. In fact, there were vaccine mandates by in the private sector as well. There were vaccine mandates in universities. Um, so I, I, I felt that there wasn't clear who they're asking. I mean, there there is a sense that they're asking the federal government, but the reality is that the, whatever they were protesting crossed or transcended all governments and private sector. Um, so we, though, were still concerned about uh, safety, um, about the outcome of, uh, of, because we heard different Reports on what the, what the objective of these protests, um, people linked it to potentially what happened in the U.S. in Washington, D.C. You know, on January 6th. So there was a lot of anxiety. Um, and uh, we certainly wanted to make sure that the federal government was prepared for, for this protest. So we were briefed um, uh, by law enforcement agencies that... Uh, and again, Ottawa is not unaccustomed to uh, to protest. It is, after all, the capital of our nation where there are typical protests. So we were briefed that law enforcement agencies were prepared. The hope that this was going to be like most protests, it might last a weekend, it might last a few days after the weekend, but the hope and the expectation that it wasn't going to go on for, for a very long time. Right. And... Uh, needless to say, uh, it, it didn't last just the weekend. When did it become apparent that your department was going to be more heavily involved than just observing the events unfold and that you would be asked by the government to, to, to take a role in finding solutions? I would say a few days into the protest where it, be it had become clear that this was not an um, a usual protest. Um, there was a sense that there is some stalemate by law enforcement um, and, and, and other type of agencies. So what I decided to do, what our government decided to do is to task our officials to figure out what tools that we have in the federal um, uh, authority to deal with with the occupation because by that time it had become an occupation so we tasked the official to do this um they did a lot of work looking we couldn't they couldn't find any legislation or regulation because um the jurisdiction was law, local law enforcement it either was the uh, responsibility of the local police or the provincial authorities 
So then what we did and what I tasked the, uh, our department is to put together a toolkit uh, to be proactive out of the sense of being proactive and collaborative and, 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 uh, and constructive to put together a toolkit based on the rules and the regulations that the department has found to be utilized to help enforce the law and to help mitigate or manage the escalation of the situation. So that's where eventually um, the strategic um, uh, enforcement strategy uh, became to be. And we heard from from your deputy uh, about the development of what I think was originally called the maximum enforcement strategy ended up evolving into the strategic enforcement strategy about seeing uh, what laws from various jurisdictions could be brought to bear uh, on the situation. And and uh, we don't need to to to, uh, to to rerun the evidence that he he gave us because he gave us quite a thorough account of it. But the, the point I remember him mentioning, and I'll ask you to uh, comment on from the ministerial perspective, is that is that uh, just the way the Department of Transport works, because it has to take its federal responsibility and coordinate that with all of the provinces and territories, there's already a very strong network within the Department of Transport with all of the partner agencies or equivalent agencies including law enforcement and, and uh, regulation in each of the provinces and territories. And would, that, and, and would that level of connectivity and intergovernmental relations also apply at the ministerial level? Indeed. Um, I would say I have um, um, very constructive, positive relationship with my provincial counterparts. We meet at least once a year in Council of Ministers, Transportation is one of those areas that has a lot of shared responsibilities between the federal and provincial governments. So we either meet as a council or one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, this is a, a quite a common practice uh, throughout my year and a half as, as a Minister of Transport. And as at the ministerial level, did you, uh, for the purposes of, of implementing or, or I suppose I should say originally developing and then hope, hopefully getting the cooperation of the provinces and territories to implement the strategic enforcement strategy, were you reaching out to your ministerial colleagues uh, at the provincial and territorial level on, on the plan? Yes. Um, you know, after the first week, it, it's... Uh, it's become clear um, that the situation, as I said, has become a lot more complex and a lot more uh, volatile. And, and it seemed that there was a, a bit of confusion about whose responsibility it is to deal with enforcing the law. Or is there capacity enough locally uh, to, to enforce the law? So we, I, I was proactive in reaching out to my provincial counterpart, particularly in Alberta, in Ontario, uh, uh, in, in BC as well, and in, uh, in Manitoba. <clears throat> Let's start with your uh, efforts to engage with Ontario. Um, the, the time frame I'm, I, I, I'm going to concentrate on just to get the matter focused quickly, is the sort of February 7th, 8th, 9th time frame. So we are at the point where the, the, the convoy has, has 
put down roots, so to speak, uh, in Ottawa. There are other events at, at Coots and Emerson. And uh, if I could ask the clerk to call up SSM CAN 40-5289, and uh, Minister Gabra, this will be a text, uh, a series of texts between you and uh, um, Minister Mulroney, Carolyn Mulroney, uh, of the province of Ontario. You have been listening to Ormal Gabra, and the Transport Minister. He is testifying at the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. We're going to bring back our press gallery right now. We have Tawn McCharles from the Toronto Star. She's down at the inquiry in studio here. Bob Fife, who is the Bureau Chief, the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for the Global Mail. Solomon Friedman, uh, also a, a criminal defense lawyer. I wanted to uh, go back to you, Mr. Friedman, talking about the definition of the CSIS Act and how that, in your mind, uh, as a result of this, needs to be really changed. Yeah, so it goes like this. It's not an accident that the definition of threat to the security of Canada in the Emergencies Act is the same as that in the CSIS Act. That was actually a conscious decision that was made by Parliament when they passed the Emergencies Act. And the thinking was very simple. They said, we know threats to the security of Canada will evolve, and that definition may need to be amended from time to time. But of course, we know nobody's going to go looking at the Emergencies Act in the good times, mm -hmm. right, when things are peaceful and calm. But the CSIS Act will come, and it has been amended and come under consideration. The entire Act has. So they wanted those threats to be able to be amended as they evolve. So hearing this argument from Minister Lametti, who says, well, although it's the same wording, although it says that the, the, the legal analysis is the same, we took a broader, more expansive view. Of course, I can't tell you why solicitor client privilege. It totally ignores what the intention of the legislators were who passed this law in the first place. And that, that's critically important here, right? Because, of course, the Emergencies Act should be applied equally to all protests, all civil disobedience, all unrest equally, not because the government in one case or another decides this is worthy of some more scrutiny. That's very problematic from a democratic point of view. So, Bob, what needs to happen going forward here? Well, uh, first of all, uh, if the government, the Prime Minister is going to be have to ask to waive solicitor-client privilege and to release the government's rationale for why they felt there was a broader definition, aside from the CSIS Act, to invoke the Emergencies Act. And if they don't, I expect that uh, that is going to be a very damning part of the report when Justice Rouleau brings it down, which I also hope that he will, you know, lay out some of the problems that... Um, because, you know, one of the things that th has been so good about this inquiry, not so much the testimony, mm -hmm. but the, real, the lifting of, uh, uh, of the secrecy about right. what actually went on, the police incompetence, the political infighting, uh, the absolute mishmash of how this thing was handled. We need the Justice Rouleau to not only explain why the Emergencies Act, uh, whether it was justified or not, but what a roadmap to make sure that this kind of thing happens again. We don't have this kind of complete and utter incompetence. Yeah. Tonda, I want to bring you in on this uh, conversation as well. When you consider, you know, what this sets up, as Bob had just laid out, what this sets up for the Prime Minister on Friday, when you consider that there is still, you know, this black box that is sort of sitting on the table. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, there's no question the Prime Minister is going to be asked about that by many of the lawyers here because they're still trying to understand the rationale. And I think that 
another question um, that I have in my mind as the prime minister comes is how he was processing all of the advice that was happening at a very rapid pace in those sort of 12 hours leading or 24 hours before they invoked the act uh, about things that were happening, um, be it a plan in Ottawa to actually uh, crack down on the protest, be it a plan in the uh, by the RCMP in Alberta to uh, conduct the raid on, on the Coots blockade, uh, or the fact that by then the Windsor Bridge had cleared. Uh, it would be interesting to know what was going on in those debates and why the Prime Minister, uh, even after he heard strong opposition from First Ministers on that call on Monday morning, why he still felt it was necessary to go ahead and use this sledgehammer of a law, let's face it. Um, there's no question in hindsight, everybody is saying here, that yeah, sure, after it was invoked, the protests started to clear in the following days. But, um, you know, did the end justify the means? Do you think, though, they're going to keep going on those lines about the freezing the bank accounts, being able to get uh, more police and the tow trucks, Tonda, in, in place? Do you think they're going to keep spouting those lines? Absolutely, they're going to because because it's part of the rationale that they cited. You know that this that the orders that they issued to compel tow trucks to freeze bank accounts actually did work. Uh, they've said on numerous occasions that provinces, not just Ontario and Al but Alberta as well, had difficulty using existing authorities. And so this particular law, they argue, the government argues, was directed, targeted, proportional, and uh, wasn't. They didn't keep it on for very long. Those measures were revoked. Uh, within a week or so. So absolutely, they're going to keep using those lines because, in fact, that's their rationale, isn't it? It was needed for those reasons. You should yeah. watch Friday, by the way, if there are enemy text messages from Justin Trudeau. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what we <laughs> oh, have Oh, everybody wants to see those, Bob. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate Bob Fife from <laughs> the Globe and Mail, Toronto Stars, Tonda McCharles, Solomon Friedman, criminal defense lawyer. Thanks for joining us. That is your Power Play Day in politics, everyone. Thanks for spending your time with us. We'll be back here tomorrow. See you then.